stay hungry, stay foolish. The Innovation Show is brought to you by Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Our guest today applies the rigor of physics to questions of biology. He has found that despite the riotous diversity in the sizes of mammals, they are all, to a large extent, scaled versions of one another. This speaks to everything from how long we can expect to live to how many hours of sleep we each need. These investigations have led him to powerful insights about the elemental laws that bind us together in profound ways and how all complex systems are dancing to the same simple tune, however diverse and however unrelated that they may seem. It's a great pleasure to welcome back for episode two of this magnificent series, the author of Scale, the universal laws of life and death in organisms, in cities and in companies. Jeffrey West, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Aidan. Uh, nice to be back. And thank you again for that uh, very kind and flattering introduction. So uh, delighted to continue the conversation. It's wonderful to have you back on the show. I'm going to I'm going to jump in, I'm going to try and keep us as much to the track of the book as possible, which is very difficult, because it's complex, and it's connected all over the place. But I wanted to help the audience build the lenses as I have through reading chapter after chapter. So I thought, having in episode one established a way of thinking about scaling, that we would maybe talk about network and scaling paradigm itself, because you say established in the biological arena, this can be applied to ask similar questions about the dynamics, growth and structure of cities and companies with a view to developing an analogous mechanistic science of cities and companies. So here, I'd love to jump to what you say, cities and global sustainability, innovation and cycles of singularities. And perhaps we'll introduce this at a very high level, because this will help us understand later when we talk about the long, the longevity of companies and indeed of cities themselves. You know, we, we talked about last time, we focused mostly on the biological and ecological, evolutionary aspects of life around us, the biosphere. Um, and um, I, I tried to um, give some background to the scaling laws, how extraordinary they are, um, how pervasive they are, their universality, uh, the dominance of the number four, this curious number four, and how all of these can be related back to the physics and mathematics and sort of general features, if you like, of the networks that sustain life, everything from um, the obvious ones like our circulatory system, all the way down to um, potentially uh, networks within cells, uh, but also our brains potentially, um, but also ecosystem networks. So, so this is a body of work that's been developed and um, um, it has all kinds of, as you indicated, all kinds of very interesting um, and even I would say profound implications because it determines um, the longevity, how long an organism lives. Um, it depends how long you sleep. It, uh, it uh, tells you uh, things about cancer and growth and so on. So it's a it's a it's a kind of a 
a composite theory, an integrated theory. Um, and the other thing I wanted to stress, which I think we touched on at the very end, it's what we call a coarse grain theory. That is, um, and it just, and I do want before I, I launch into the city stuff and sustainability, um, just sort of reiterate that um, it's distinguished from sort of the laws of physics, which we sort of can, for want of a better phrase, think of of exact. You know, there's quantum mechanics and Newton's laws and relativity and so on. And, you know, they are extraordinary. We wouldn't be talking if we didn't understand those to an extraordinary degree of accuracy. Um, you know, all of our technology relies on our understanding of those. These laws are not like that. These laws are more what you might call stochastic or probabilistic. So the things, these laws pertain to the mean value, the sort of average value of things. So, um, so it's sort of considering um, at some very high level, um, all human beings are roughly the same, which we are, by the way. <laughs> but we, you know, but, uh, uh, and of course, then you could dig deeper. Once you have that theory about the bigger picture, you can start um, making the resolution finer and finer and dig deeper. And that's crucial in, in, in developing a deeper and deeper understanding. And so that's sort of the, paradigm, the framework in which we're thinking of these things. So I want to now, let me now transition to what you've asked about, um, namely to cities, urbanization, and companies. And, and, and I think um, if we're going to start at a high level, I think it's useful to remind people of this extraordinary phenomenon that's been going on uh, beginning about 10,000 years ago um, with our uh, discovery of language. I mean, once we discovered language and were able to communicate with each other, um, concomitant with that, we sort of discovered economies of scale. Namely, uh, you and I working together can build a house faster and more efficiently than one of us working individually. And, um, and so this idea of community, of the collective, of coming together, um, um, was not just attractive for social reasons, but was presumably dominated primarily by practical reasons that there were tremendous benefits coming from working together. And so communities formed. And uh, of course, we were hunter-gatherers. We'd already at some level pre-language, uh, uh, at some, some unconscious level, uh, biologically understood that. But um, with the coming of language and the, and, the, and the possibility of communicating also allowed us to develop ideas um, and, and to, to become something that is essentially quintessentially human and something that animals don't do, and that is we can project into the future uh, and uh, the, the, make concepts and uh, what if and plan and concomitant with that, just one of the things that has always intrigued me is we became presumably the only organism that is conscious of its own death. That is, we know we're going to die. I, 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 as far as we know, other animals and plants are not in that sense conscious of it. It's not that they don't have some possible form of consciousness, but anyway, we develop consciousness. And so that's crucial because out of all that 
all that phenomenon or those phenomena, we evolved societies and we evolved um, cities and the whole structure of organization. And um, that development of cities in many ways can be considered the greatest machine that human beings have invented because the what cities do, when you think of city, here's the problem. When you when I say the word city, anyone listening to this thinks, oh yeah, the skyscrapers of New York, the boulevards of Paris, you know, I don't know, the, the streets and the buildings and so on. Well, yeah, of course that's the city. But the the real city is the people, because the whole point of all that stuff or that infrastructure is to facilitate social interaction and to enhance this form of interaction and positive feedback in the way we interact with each other. I talk to you, you talk to someone else, talk back to me. We talk together um, in some form. And we are, even if it's very primitive, creating ideas. We're innovating in some primitive way all the time. Of course, 99.999% of those ideas <laughs> don't go anywhere and not interesting to anybody else and so on. But what is extraordinary about that coming together and that facilitating of coming together of city that the, the cities enhance and facilitate is that every once in a while it produces the theory of relativity or it produces a Google or it produces uh, an Amazon. I mean, dynamically. Um, and so great cities have places to facilitate interaction. They have lecture halls and sports stadiums and squares for people to congregate and parks uh, and uh, office buildings, places to bring people together to interact. And that's fundamental to what a city is. And that is, uh, and so the buildings are there as, if you like, as a stage or a prop to facilitate this. So that's the background to, to this. And, um, the other background to it that now connects it, and that, by the way, that is not something that dominates biology. Life, you know, most organisms don't act like that, don't have this sort of positive feedback, at least on short timescales. Because the other thing, maybe I should have emphasized that, is that yes, you know, the process of natural selection is sort of like that. There's a, but that's over well, at the minimum, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands, and even millions or hundreds of millions of years, the phenomenon of this positive feedback in social networks and social interactions is taking place sometimes in minutes, certainly in, in, in hours and days and months. Um, you know, it's happening all the time with us, incredibly short uh, timescales. So that's crucial. So um, at the other thing, and I've just brought it up, is networks, is that just as in biology, um, the, 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 net, the networks are the underlying mechanism that gives rise to these hidden laws, these laws that are totally non-apparent if you just look around you. When you look around you, as I said earlier, last time, it's this just sort of messy, arbitrary, capricious, chaotic world is what it looks like. But actually underlying that, if you look through the right lens, there's this extraordinary regularity. And so the question is, given that cities are also networks, road network, transport networks, electrical lines, water lines, gas lines, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, but also have social networks, 
Um, are there also regularities? Are there also sort of hidden laws that we're not aware of in our normal day-to-day uh, sort of interactions that, that are at play? So that's the, the, the kind of point of departure for digging deep into the science of this and trying to develop a science of cities. So um, the first thing you have to ask is going back to the biology inspired by the biology, and to repeat, I think, what I said last time, that despite appearances, namely the fact that, you know, the whale lives in the ocean and the giraffe has a long neck and the elephant a trunk, we walk on two feet and the mouse scurries around and so on. We're actually, as you said in your introduction, scaled versions of each other in this coarse-grained way at the sort of 18 90% level. Anything you measure about us, whether it's our physiology or our life history, scales in a regular non-linear way, as I say, um, originating in the underlying networks. So um, the question is, and I will do it with American cities because I now know those best, is New York a scaled up Los Angeles, which is a scaled up Chicago, which is a scaled up Santa Fe, which is where I live, a small town, um, despite appearances, despite the fact that Los Angeles does not look like New York. Uh, as a city, um, and um, um, it has a different history, different culture, I would even say, and a different geography. Um, but is it, in fact, in, in this coarse grain way, a scaled version? Well, of course, you can only answer that by looking at data. So um, when I, at some stage, I put together a collaboration of very smart young people um, to actually look into that. So. Uh, and they uh, gathered the data together. And amazingly, uh, we found that um, cities are indeed scale versions of one another. When we, The first thing we looked at um, actually was with a very tiny collaboration with a man named Doug Helbing, who's at the uh, um, uh, ETH, uh, the sort of MIT of Switzerland in Zurich and his student. Uh, but we put together a little collaboration and we looked at something just to start the ball rolling. How do the number of petrol stations scale with the size of a city? And um, so, <laughs> so I won't go into how we got the data, but the, when the data was assembled, um, it was beautiful. They, um, you know, he looked at, uh, I think the initial search was only across four European cities. And there they were, they scaled beautifully, and they looked just like the biological scaling. That is that uh, if you plotted them, as I explained last time, on a logarithmic scale, going up by factors of 10, using population as the proxy for the size of a city, uh, and you just plotted the number of gasoline, petrol stations versus size, population, there they were lining up, approximating this straight line again, on this log log plot. And, um, and the, the slope of those lines, which was approximately the same across the four countries, I forget, I think it was France, Spain, uh, Portugal, and Italy, I think, uh, uh, were based roughly the same. And the only difference with biology was that it was 0.85 instead of 0.75. Um, otherwise, it was the same, which says in English, if you double the size of a city, you don't need twice as many petrol stations. 
you actually only need 85%, roughly speaking, 85% as many. There is this marvelous 15% saving every time you double the size of a city in petrol stations, at least in those four countries. Well, later, not so much later, we expanded that and looked across the globe. And we found in all urban systems where we could get data, they scaled and, and wonderfully, they scaled with the same exponent, that same slope, 0.85. Uh, and then we took it one step further, of course. We looked at all infrastructure, not just, you know, petrol stations, but the length of all the roads, uh, the length of all the electrical lines, um, the, 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 I think the volume of buildings, I know, but all kinds of things that you could get data for in terms of infrastructure, the physicality of the city. And it was wonderful. Um, it didn't matter what the infrastructure was, and it didn't matter where it was, it all scaled in the same way, just like in biology. It was like, you know, cities are cities, which was fantastic. So the scaling laws said that every time you double the size, all infrastructure, uh, it, you save about 15% in the same way. So that was very exciting and mimic biology. And in one way, it wasn't surprising. What was surprising was that it's, again, like in biology, it scaled so well. It didn't scale as well, as well, meaning there were more fluctuations around that straight line, more variance around that straight line, but still they, they all clung close to that straight line um, and was statistically significant. Um, uh, and that's not surprising because biology has been around for life, has been around for more than a few billion, well, for a few billion years. So there's been, you know, the whole process of natural selection and feedback has taken place over huge space uh, spans of time. So, um, you know, given this theoretical framework, that put more and more are they optimizing the system in the language I used last time. But cities have only been around for hundreds of years, um, some a few thousand, but most hundreds. Um, and yet they conform to this line. So that was great. But then we looked at something that was beyond biology, something that we that doesn't really exist in biology and presumably did not exist, on, certainly did not exist on this planet prior to 10,000 years ago before we started to um, form societies and cities, namely socioeconomic metrics. Um, and for all we know, by the way, um, you know, maybe they didn't exist before 10,000 years ago anywhere in the universe. I mean, life may have existed, but maybe not, we don't know. Um, uh, despite all the science fiction movies, you know, maybe there's life elsewhere, but it may not have developed this far as having cities and internet and Zoom and all the rest of the rubbish that we participate in. Um, but anyway, so um, we looked at socioeconomic quantities, uh, meaning things like, um, you know, wages, um, income, wages, uh, number of patents produced in a city as a, as a measure of its innovation, um, amount of crime in a city, the, the, the number of flu cases, number of AIDS cases, um, whatever, whatever we could lay our hands on. And I forget, might, we might have had 15 variables and that was also extremely satisfying and quite surprising. 
because it showed again scaling to the same degree as it did for the infrastructure um, um, and the scaling remarkably was the same no matter where you looked across the globe whether you looked in europe uh, north america latin america asia meaning china japan and so on wherever we could get data and could plot it it looked the same <laughs> and here was what was surprising, and I always kick myself that I didn't predict it a priori. I was too stupid not to realize that we would see something different than in biology, namely, instead of sublinear scaling, meaning um, an economy of scale, the slope being less than one, the 0 0.75, 0 0.85, the slopes were bigger than one. In fact, they were roughly 1.15. 15% bigger, um, but it was roughly 1.15, whether it was patents in Japan, um, you know, crime in the United States, or um, I don't know, disease in um, Italy, didn't matter, or in Chile, I don't know, wherever. It was always one point, roughly 1.15, roughly. Uh, which says in English, just to make it clear, that if you double the size of a city, First, repeat what I said before, you save roughly 15% with each doubling on all infrastructure. And at the same time, you gain 15% on all socioeconomic activity, whether it's the good, patents, ideas, um, wealth, income, and so on, or bad and ugly, as I say, like crime and disease and so on. And uh, that was kind of amazing. There was this kind of simple universality underlying this extraordinary messiness that appears around us, and especially in cities. I mean, you go to a city, it looks sort of, as I say, again, like the, the biological world around us, it looks sort of arbitrary and capricious, where you recognize some regularities, there's roads and things. and But, you know, generally, it's hard to believe that they, that it is so regular. And it behaves as if in, you know, 1790, there was an international congress where all the countries of the world were brought together, kind of United Nations. And the idea was that people recognize, listen, we've, we've discovered coal and fossil fuels, we're exploiting them, and we've discovered entrepreneurship and capitalism. And we're going to go bonkers in the next couple of hundred years. And we're going to be building lots of cities. Cities are going to go completely crazy. And we're going to build lots of them. And they're going to expand. Let's think about the design. And let's set down a bunch of rules. This is how they should be. That's as if, it, of course, that didn't happen at all. Cities in Japan grew organically without even knowing hardly that Europe existed. Um, so, uh, and so on and so forth. So obviously, there are organic forces at work that are somehow constraining all of the work and all of the effort and all of the arguments and disagreements over planning and, you know, what we should be doing here and how we should be doing this with the city and what the economy should be and so on. Yes, that had an effect, but overwhelmingly, at the sort of 80-90% level, it has its own dynamic. 
And, and so the question is, where in the hell did that come from? I mean, either you believe in sort of, um, I suppose, in um, you know, a great designer in the sky determining everything for us, a priori, or you believe that there are organic forces that are analogous to the evolutionary kind of forces of natural selection, survival of the fittest, competitive forces at work, and so on, and uh, the principles of whatever it is that govern our social networks. Because the one thing that you recognize immediately is, as I said a moment ago, how can it be that uh, you know Japan and China, which hardly knew anything about the West, and we who hardly knew anything about Asia, developed our urban systems scale in the same way? Um, well, it must be because, and this is going back to what I said just about 15 minutes ago, because the whole point of cities is for people, is to facilitate social networks. And we're all at this level of granularity, roughly speaking, we're all the same. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, we may look different, we may have different cultures, and so on. Uh, but, you know, we're at some socio-biological level, we're extraordinarily similar. And of course, we know that. I mean, it was very clear, I'm sure, to Marco Polo when he went to China that these were human beings, you know, that they were the same fundamentally as he was. I mean, they had cities and they had interactions. They loved and they hated. They killed one another and so on and so forth. And that's universal. Um, and... Uh, just a side comment, which is an editorial comment, which you may want to take out, is one of the tragedies, of course, of that, of that Western man, especially moving out, was the whole debate over whether when they went to Africa, these were human beings. And we're still living with that. I mean, that, that we're still living with. And that debate, even if it's not conscious, is totally not conscious now but is underlies the whole struggle and challenge we're having with racism. I mean, are they really us? And, and so, I mean, we already have the problem that the English and the Irish have been fighting each other for a thousand years. <laughs> so little, so we even have that problem, which is, you know, I mean, let's, well, anyway, let's not go there, but you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely. No, well said. And and we, we covered it, Jeffrey, in previous shows. We had the great Angela Saini on the show before, and we talked about the out of Africa hypothesis and the origin of racism and, and how it's a man-made structure. It's not, it's not, it's not designed into, no, ants aren't racist. <laughs> I always think about that's that. That's what's amazing. Well, one of the things I often say is that um, you could take an exact opposite view about this, that I think one of the curious things about human beings is, in fact, how similar we are. You know, I mean, there's very little variation, really. I mean, it's not like dogs, for example. I mean, dogs are an extreme case, but you go from a chihuahua to a great dame, my God. And they recognize each other as dogs and treat each other equally. You know, they don't think, oh, that stupid little chihuahua. You know, we're not having him around here. Or, or, or what kind of car do you drive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're, we're very curious that way, that we're extraordinarily similar, actually. And yet we, we you know, 
we've spent a lot of time looking for our differences and exaggerating them. And uh, it's it's a tragedy of, of social human life, I'm afraid, and, and maybe even predates social, I don't know. But, uh, but it's not, it's something man, as you say, well said, it's man-made and, and uh, it's very peculiar and sad. Anyway, sorry. It's, it's not at all. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. And my, my mind works in a similar way where, I, you know, I mentioned Ed Wilson, who you had the great honor of meeting. Oh. E.O. Wilson, may rest in peace. And I often think about nature as a, as a, from a biomimicry even perspective. And I, oh. I, I was that type of kid who was like looking at the ants on the ground and looking <laughs> at bees. And I've learned about it since. And, and I, I noticed how they'd build and it kind of going, that's how kind of like we just build, you know, and create life. Right. And where I'm going with this is that it's often the social constructs that lead us down the wrong path. And I, I was reading recently, I had a, an episode just recently with Herb Cohen, who's written these amazing books on negotiation. And he right. said in one of the books, he was saying about how when God, the great maker in the sky that you said, right says to Abraham, I want you to destroy those two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, right. the sinful twin cities in the Old Testament. Right. And I was thinking about your book when I was reading that, right. I was going to go and Abraham should have turned around and gone and goes, there's no need, they're going to destroy themselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because this is actually one of the challenges because you talk about, well, even when we talked about entropy the last day, we need to keep feeding the beast as the beast gets bigger and bigger. And where does that go? It's like this game of musical chairs. And in some ways, we run out of chairs. Now, some cities die, as you say, some cities die. For example, there used to be a mine there, we took everything away from that the mine doesn't exist anymore, etc. The city dies because of industry. But cities die as well, because they scale out of out of capacity as well. I'd love to talk about that just in case for those people who don't have a time to join us again, because this links as well to the increasing cycles of innovation that are needed in companies as well. And it also talks to something I mentioned in the introduction there, which is singularity. Yes, I, I'll, let me lead into that. That's really good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I want to just finish what I was saying earlier in terms of because it, it relate it, it's a segue to this. To, your, to answering your question. And that is that um, um, I tried to argue that the universality, uh, the global expression of all these scaling laws um, can, you know, the natural explanation is that it resides, so to speak, in the mathematics and physics of the social networks, that somehow we're all the social networks um, in, in different societies are actually quite similar. And, um, uh, so one of the things that we did just to check that, so that, 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 that then forms a basis for a potential real theory, because you can start with social networks and build up what that means in terms of in integrating that with the infrastructure and so on. So I'm not going to talk about that, but that's where you develop the science and the um, theoretical framework, which allows one to uh, make predictions and so forth. And I'll, that will be the segue in a moment to singularities, growth and singularities, uh, <clears throat> and collapse. But um, uh, you know, one of the one of the crucial components of doing good science is not just um, you know collect data, make observation, do experiment, and then analyze it within a given framework, 
But of course, to then construct a model or a theory that explains it and then makes predictions. And, um, and so, um, so it was with this, much harder in these kinds of situations. But so one of the predictions from what I, what I said is that underlying this are social networks. Therefore, if you could measure the degree of connectivity between people as a function of city size, it too, since that underlies the whole dynamics, it too should scale with city size with an exponent with a slope on a log log graph of about 1.15. So we put together um, a collaboration with uh, our friends at MIT who had access to these extraordinary data sets of mobile phone calls. And we did that. Maybe I even mentioned this last time, um, but uh, let me just say a couple of words about it. Um, so we had this these data sets of mobile phone calls, which of course, which is fantastic. Each one of us carries one of these things, and uh, it's recorded, as you well know. The, the phone company knows everything about you. They know where you are, where you're going, and so on. And we were able to get that data early on, and um, from that, uh, analyze it to determine the degree of social interaction in the city, because we're, this is it. This is actually the network of social interactions, those phone calls. And so um, uh, uh, when we did that, it was extremely satisfying when you plotted the data. Indeed, it, uh, it showed a slope of 1.15 as predicted. So it was very, very satisfying. Beautiful. Uh, uh, yeah, so we felt really good about that. And many other things that came from that mobile phone data. It's a marvelous, I was very resistant to it for, uh, at the beginning, by the way, because I felt that uh, this wasn't a good proxy. Um, and, and of course, that was because it was very early on and the United States hadn't yet really adapted to it. But I had not realized that Africa and many parts of Europe, it had become sort of 1890 and now sort of 100%. And by the time we got this data, that's what it was. So the data actually that we had at that time was the UK and uh, Portugal. And they lay on top of one. It was fantastic, actually. It was really powerful. And that, that was extremely convincing. So um, we were convinced that it was, you know, our ideas were right. Uh, the predictions were bearing out in all the various things that we looked at. Um, and now, uh, so one of the offsprings of that was to follow some of the ideas that we had done in biology, inspired by the biology. And one of the first things to think about is this question of growth. And uh, you know, since this was inspired by biology and networks, the first thing just to remind ourselves is about growth in um, biology. And I don't, did I talk about that last time? I don't think I did. Even if you did, I think I think please go for it because it, it connects. That, that's it, the beauty about this as well, Jeffrey. Is that that some of the stuff we will will repeat, but it's in a different context. Because yeah, it, and that's good. That's yeah. good. So it's important that I do this. So let me just go back to growth in biology. So the way it works, and this is um, um, the uh, template for all growth of these kinds of systems, whether it is. Um, uh, um, an organism, whether it's a city, a company, or something we've been doing recently, the entire planet. And that is, you start out with energy. So the first thing to emphasize that is underlying all of this work 
which is not fully appreciated, is that underlying everything is energy. You cannot, nothing happens without energy. Um, you can't even have a dream at night without using energy. Amazingly, that energy, the energy that comes, that feeds you, that comes from the sun, that comes from, um, you know, the burning of fossil fuels, you could, without that, you wouldn't have a dream. So it's that, that, that um, detailed. So energy underlies it. So therefore, that's why metabolic rate, which is the amount of energy effectively you use per day to stay alive, is fundamental. And, um, uh, and so uh, you ask, what happens to that met met metabolic energy? Well, of course, it gets sent through these networks and it goes to the cells. And at the cellular level, on the one hand, it maintains the cells. It repairs damage um, and cells that have died are replaced and so on. And then some of that energy is allocated to growing new cells that form new biomass. Okay. So you write an equation that says that metabolic and metabolic rate equals maintenance, that is all the cells plus growth of new cells. So that's put that in mathematics and solve the equation. And out of that equation comes something also very convincing that it shows why it is that you grow quickly and then stop. So what's called sigmoidal growth, you grow quickly and then you um, go into a stable configuration, which is true of most of life around us. Uh, we certainly do it. Um, and you spend most of your life in this approximately stable configuration. Um, and, uh, and that's extremely important for biology and for the biosphere and is one of the features as to why life has been sustainable for two to three billion years because you have this stable configuration that evolves and much of life sort of spends time in a metastable state. Of course, it's continually evolving and changing, but on much longer timescales. Okay, so that's great. Um, and you understand it, and this is important. Why do we stop growing from this viewpoint? Because metabolic rate is the supply system, but that's scaling sublinearly. That is the bigger you are, the less is being, and I've emphasized this last time, the less is being delivered to each cell. So as you grow bigger, less and less energy is being delivered to each cell. On the other hand, you're growing sort of linearly. You just keep adding cells linearly. So eventually something that's growing linearly is beats something that's only growing sublinearly. If you only get 75% with each doubling and uh, in terms of your supply, but you're trying to supply something that's doubling each size every time, well, you can't keep up. And that's why you stop. And so that gives you a complete theory. And so it's wonderful. And so we have a complete theory for growth of any organism, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go into that. But so that's great. Um, but of course, that's, uh, you know, in terms of the socioeconomic system that we have evolved in the last 200 years, again, to repeat myself, coming from the discovery of fossil fuels, it, uh, exploitation, and uh, the concomitant uh, discovery and exploitation of entrepreneurship and capitalism, free markets, which have been enormously successful. Um, coming from that, that kind of growth is terrible because built into our whole way of thinking is open-ended growth, uh, that we need to have open-ended growth. And here we have 
just like you and me, we have finite growth. So what's going on here? You know, that's not good. That model, Elvis, is good. Well, it turns out, and this is another, I consider a huge success of the theory, it, if you have super linear scaling, then instead of when you get bigger, if it were cellular, less is being delivered to the cell. Actually, as you get bigger, more is being delivered to the cell. Or in terms of a social system, the bigger you, as you grow, more is being delivered to the individual, the bigger you are. And when you grow more, even more is being delivered. And when you grow more, even, even more. So it's obvious what's happening. You just keep growing open-endedly. So you can put this all into the mathematics, solve the equations, and beautifully you see instead of a curve that grows quickly and then stops, you have a, grow, a curve that just keeps growing. So it's very satisfying because then we have now this lovely self-contained theory you have based on social networks. Social networks have positive feedback. Positive feedback lives to, leads to superlinear scaling and superlinear scaling leads to open-ended growth, which is what we see. So it's very self-contained and the data supports that. So that was great, but... Now comes the butt. <laughs> this is where the CF go, CFO goes, please stop, turn off the recording. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to hear, now you don't want to hear the rest because there's a big butt. Two things. Uh, one I'm going to come back to and I'll say immediately. The other thing I haven't emphasized probably enough is that along with superlinear scaling and economies of scale is the slowing of the pace of life. I did talk about this last time. So, so an elephant's heart beats systematically slower than ours, and ours beats systematically slower than a mouse's, and so on, in a predictable way. And life goes much slower, and you live much, and you live concomitantly longer. Superlinear scaling leads to the opposite. That is that life speeds up. You get faster and faster. So, not surprisingly, you're keep building on yourself. You build faster. And I'll talk about mortality later. But you build faster, life gets faster, everything gets faster, and so on. And I will, as I say, I'll come back to that. But, uh, and, and that's intimately related to this open-ended growth. But now here's the but. So one of the buts is life gets faster continuously. So that's non-trivial. And we know that, and I surely know it. I can, I mean, life is viscerally much faster now for me than it was when I was a young man, when I was your age, for example, and so on. Um, but um, more importantly, really, is that built into the mathematics in terms of this open-ended growth is something that's called technically a finite time singularity. And this is a big but, because what it says is that in some, it, you have open-ended growth, but in some finite time in the future, that finite growth is going to become infinite. As you can see, you just keep building. Where's it going to stop? Well, it doesn't. And that's going to happen in some finite time, which could be five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, maybe 1,000 years, and so on. So that, is, and, and that growth, by the way, from the theory is faster than exponential. By the way, if it were exponential growth, in that picture, um, the singularity 
is it is it infinite time? So it's irrelevant. So uh, exponential is sort of in a weird way almost okay, despite its bad name and what I talked about last time. It's it's borderline because there is this always open endedness and keeping up with supply, but the singularity never really occurs. But in actual fact, what we actually have is not X, we have faster than exponential, and data supports that. And that leads to this so-called finite time singularity, meaning that in some finite time, all socioeconomic quantities go become infinite, which is crazy. You have an infinite GDP, infinite number of AIDS cases. I mean, that's I mean, if you took it seriously, that's crazy. And the theory tells you what happens, that uh, if you continue with that, you have to collapse. You collapse. On the other side of the singularity is collapse, and that's it. Um, so you ask yourself, how in the hell do you avoid that? And how have we avoided it? And the answer is that we've avoided it by innovation. Because the, everything I said in terms of the mathematics um, implies that the parameters that control you know, our interactions and, our, and the kinds of things we do are fixed in that time period we're talking about. And put it in a different language, it means that we're living, I mean, to put it in sort of almost anthropological, archeological language, we're in an age. So you have the, the image of a stone age or a bronze age or an iron age, you discover iron and that sets a whole paradigm for the way things are. So certain parameters are sort of fixed by the fact that you discovered iron and the properties of iron and the kind of industries that grow up around it, and so on. So you have this image, this idea, this concept of paradigm or innovate, major innovation. And so uh, the so then you realize that, yes, uh, we have assumed that the, the paradigm has remained the same in that period. So that tells you how you avoid this. You better change the paradigm. You better make a major innovation before you start to approach that singularity, because if you continue, you're destined to collapse. You better make a paradigm shift, a major innovation. You better reset the clock, reinvent yourself, whatever, whatever language you want to use and at whatever scale you want to use to think about this, this, this conceptual theory. So you better do it. And that's what we've done. That is you know, you can think of it, all those things I just said, beginning way back, bronze, you know, stone, iron, bronze. Now then we have the coal, oil, whatever. You know, now we've had the computer age. We've out of that. We're now in the internet age, you know, and so on. So that's great. So that's what we've done. And um, I have not collected the data, but the people, there are people that spend their time thinking about these innovations and innovation. And as, as is obvious, you know, what you consider a major innovation is to some extent in the eyes of the beholder, and you have to sort of make certain definitions. I'm not an expert in that, but I've taken data that other people have collected. And again, it's very satisfying. It fits their, fits the theory because the theory says something about this. Theory says, so, you know, when I say, well, you have to reinvent yourself, you have cycles of innovation. Yeah, yeah, you say, yeah, yeah, every business book in your, in your library behind you says that somewhere. Every CEO 
who says, I ran this super successful company and this is how you should run your company, talks about cycles of innovation or whatever. But here's the thing they don't tell you, which comes out of the theory, is that the pace of life is increasing and you have to do it faster and faster. So it could be, just to give you, I mean, make up an example, you know, a thousand years ago, it might have taken a hundred years to develop a major innovation. And indeed, some people have argued, for example, life took a billion years to evolve a cell two billion years ago. So, you know, so you can kind of think in those terms, how long does it take to make the major innovation? Well, it may take a hundred years. Um, and indeed, uh, whereas now, the time to develop the internet was tens of years, and it happened tens of years ago, maybe what, 20, 20 30 years ago, and it took maybe 10 years to develop. Um, and that's gonna get faster and faster is what this says. So we've taken that data, and it fits surprisingly well to the, to the prediction of the theory. And uh, that's very bothersome. It's great that we can avoid it. But what you have to recognize is despite all the mantras by the economists that, yes, we don't care. But, you know, they've been very blasé, most economists, about uh, open-ended growth and about, uh, you know, exponential or faster than exponential population growth because they say, we'll innovate our way out of it. That's what we've done, and we're going to continue to do it. And they're right. We have. But what this says, that that's only postponement. You only postpone to the next one, and the next one's going to become sooner and sooner and so on. So you could take this, how should I say, reductio ad absurdum, namely to its absurd limit. Namely, we're going to have to have the analog to an internet revolution, you know, soon every five years, then every one year, then every week. And so, I mean, it's completely nuts, obviously. You can't. But to really reduce it to the absurd. And the question is, is that sustainable? And parallel with that is the recognition, we have to recognize um, something extraordinary, and that is that you and I are the same biology and effectively the same brain that we had when we started this enterprise 10,000 years ago, or even before that, 100,000 or 500,000. We're the same. You know, they, and yet, and that's what's extraordinary. That's the thing that I find so fantastic about human beings is that we are the same and we are continually adapting and we have adapted and it's extraordinary. And in my lifetime, I've had to adapt. I've had to adapt to this bloody thing, this computer. I've had to learn, you know, I had to learn to type. <laughs> I have had to learn to do Zoom. I had to learn to do LaTeX. I had to learn to do, um, you know, all these horrible things uh, that we have to do. I mean, we do that, and all of us do it, and little old ladies in stores use their cell phones uh, and so on. And we are extraordinarily adaptable. Um, but there's obviously a limit to that. I mean, at what stage, and I believe we're getting there, and one of the indicators of that, or one of the metrics for that is that I grew up still with the idea that during my lifetime, nothing much will change, really. I mean, obviously, I knew there were changes and changes were happening. But, you know, it's basically the same. And, you know, I'll do one job and I'll be in one job, that kind of image, sort of a more 
maybe early 20th century, 19th century image of a certain, I mean, it wasn't static, so it was misleading, but nevertheless, the, the mindset and the culture was that. And so, because, and, and it was appropriate because these major innovations were typically longer than the lifespan of a typical human being. Human beings, as I discussed last time, um, you know, you didn't expect to live more, more than to about 50 or 60. Um, and uh, now you can expect to live to 70, 80, 90, maybe even longer. And, uh, the, and at the same time, these bloody innovations are taking a place faster and faster. Look, look at this. They, they, I, I think they're starting to laugh at me. I, of course, still have an iPhone 6. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. iPhone have actually have taken your advice and updated their business model now. I don't know if you've noticed this. Apple have, and they've leaned into the trend of sustainability, where they're now releasing parts for people to fix the phones. That's what I learned just a few weeks ago. And I thought yeah. that was at last great. And the new what is it the cheapest iPhone, which costs about $450 or something ridiculous is, um, uh, is sort of like this, it's sort of got back you can get which is great. So I'm going to get one. Well, this is come, you know, it's on its last legs, so to speak, it works, and it does, it's fine for me. But the point is that, you know, all these new bits and pieces come along and they're innovating, you know, the new models are coming on faster and faster, new shows on television, you know, and all the rest just keep coming faster and faster. And there's a limit. Obviously, there has to be a limit to that in the same way that even though track records, athletic records continually get broken, um, I think it's impossible to think of someone running a hundred yards in five seconds or one second or a tenth of a second. You know, I mean, to be absurd again. You know, there obviously is a limit to, to it. And, um, and so it is presumably with the adaptability of the neuronal structure of our brains. And yet that same neuronal structure is creating these new things and making life go faster and faster. So that's sort of the big picture of it. And cities, and of course, the entire planet, are manifestations of that, because cities have to adapt to that. And, uh, and that's extremely difficult. And, um, you know, they can collapse, so to speak, under their own weight because of that. And, um, uh, and certainly companies do. And, um, you know, one of the things about cities is, despite what you said, it's true, cities do die. I mean, metaphorically die in various ways. I mean, they, but they are extraordinary. But cities also, one thing we haven't spent a lot of time on, enough time on, is actually the opposite to what you were saying, is the resilience of cities um, in the sense that, I mean, Detroit being a fantastic example, um, and is a very good example, and maybe a little bit segue to companies, because Detroit was uh, not only a very good example of a city that metaphorically died um, and, and is coming back, um, but also is a metaphorical example of a large company town, and that's its problem. And that's the problem with companies, is that a company is a company, actually. And unlike cities, the thing that saves cities is diversity. 
that's one of the things we discovered and was probably known to urban planners and things. The more diverse a city, just like the more diverse an ecosystem, the more resilient it is. And uh, New and Detroit was extraordinarily non-diverse. I mean, it might have been diverse, um, if you like, uh, racially or ethnically, uh, which is good, but it was very non-diverse, of course, in terms of its um, its profile of industry. You know, it was Detroit <laughs> that image, um, whereas uh, you know many major cities. Um, London and, and New York have been much more diverse. And, and London suffered. London, I mean, London's going through it probably now. I don't know enough about it in becoming so dominated by finance, um, you know, which made, made it very vulnerable during Brexit and uh, may, may make it extremely vulnerable as it moves into the future, despite its, uh, its, uh, its image of itself. And it's self-satisfaction, and it's self-satisfaction, by the way, which is a big issue. Cities are vulnerable, and they suffer from them. They are subject to this, as is the whole planet, is subject to this. But cities, many cities, um, both the organic forces and good leadership um, can combat some of those forces. You, you've... Um... You've you've given me so much science behind and our audience behind so many of the topics we talk about on the show. I know you you um I, I've sent you a copy of my book. <clears throat> One of the reasons I wanted to send it to you was I, I talk about sigmoidal curve growth of any product or service or company, etc., or even a lifespan of a person or your skill sets. And and that the key sir, the key to survival is to jump to a new curve. Before the previous one declines, so while there's still energy in the system, so I, I, I'd love to map this, and this is a bit of self-indulgence. Excuse me to our audience and to you, but I just want to make sure I have this correct. If I jump to a new curve while I still have energy in the system, while the entropy isn't too strong, I can feed the new curve, the budding curve. But the the step I bring it further in my book is because of the speed of change of cycles of innovation, I have said the curve needs to double back on itself and become an infinity curve because the S curve, the sigmoidal curve, because of the speed of change. And then I wanted to connect the reason I turned around there, Jeffrey to the, the library behind me was two books that you will be very familiar with James like so chaos, but but also then he wrote faster after chaos. And I didn't make the connection until you explained to me, well, they're kind of tied together because the speed absolutely link linked together as well. And then the last connection point was, I was thinking of a quote that I often quote of of EO Wilson, because with all this speed of change, and to understand it, oftentimes, in my role, for example, when I work with organizations, and I'm sure you get this the odd time as well, you get people saying, well, you're scaremongering, because it's actually in your interest. And E.O. Olson said, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. So we don't evolve at the same pace of change as technology does. And therefore, we need a whole jump of the S curve, we need a new change in paradigm for our children, and for uh, about how all of us think about all of this is absolutely core. And perhaps that'd be a nice way to, to land the ship on today's episode. Yes, that's very good. And I, I don't know that quote from Ed Wilson. 
but um, it's very poetic, much better than the, my long diatribe about it all. Uh, but uh, it's exactly that. And, uh, you know, um, and, and it's that is the underlying dynamic that's leading to a potential crisis. And, and I think is actually underlying a lot of the problems we see on the planet today, both uh, you know, socially, but also politically, and so on. And that's an, it's out of my expertise, of course, but uh, but it's it's hard not to relate them to some of these phenomena that are happening. But where this this idea, my image has been that um, you know we're sort of on a treadmill, and that treadmill is ex- accelerating, is going faster and faster, and you're running, you know, you have to run to keep up with it, and that's hard enough. But then at some stage, you've got to jump from that treadmill to another treadmill that's going even faster and run faster and faster on that. And then you have to jump to another one that's going even faster and you have to make those jumps faster and faster. So it's sort of like a double exponential. It's like, uh, you know, and so you can only do that for so long without a socioeconomic heart attack. And that's what the planet is beginning to lead up to and maybe even be there in some form. And we need to really understand that in a deep way and, and start to address it. And that's that's really the challenge that the planet has in terms of sustainability. And all these things like uh, climate change and um, you know the, the challenges of the economy and finance and social unrest, to me, uh, are obviously extremely important, but they are manifestations of, of this underlying dynamic. So yes, we need to address all those, but um, you know, from a science viewpoint, and I'm disappointed in the science community, by the way, because we're not doing it, is to dig deeper into the underlying origins and some of the dynamics that are causing this, because that re- will require a fundamental, potentially fundamental changes. And uh, rather than just fixing each one of these one at a time kind of thing, which is sort of the attitude that we have um, and of course, we need to do that too. I'm not, you know, it's not, it's not one or the other, but you do need, and this is a kind of philosophical point, if you like, a sort of big picture, to have that big picture and statements that you made, and, the, and that quote from Wilson, I think, are very good images that we need to implant in people to recognize that, to bring home this message, and this this message that, um, you know, in terms of um, in terms of previous crises on the planet, uh, this is sort of 19, you know, August 1939, frankly, I think. And so you're right, maybe I'm being overly pessimistic and scaremongering. I, I, I think all the evidence, you know, most scientists anyway, and most thinkers that look at it eventually come to that conclusion, even if, by the way, you feel there's a solution. So, you know, it's not that I'm pessimistic that, oh, my God, it's all over uh, completely. There's not even a way out. Um, I think we can find a way out. And the trouble is, as many people are being to recognize, the now the real problem is we haven't left ourselves enough time to really address it in terms of the rates at which processes take place on the planet because most, because in the end, let's face it, it's a political problem. I mean, that's the political leaders that uh, actually affect change. Um, 
and uh, you know they have the money to do it. They have their hands on the pots of money. Uh, industry does, and so on. But so we need much more recognition and consciousness of this, and the sense of urgency. And people are beginning to recognize it, but it's a tiny minority. It's a tiny minority. And to bring it full circle to what you said at the start, because of communication and because of the division of labor, we've gone into swim lanes, and nobody mixes swim lanes anymore. And we need people swimming across the lanes in the whole pool. Very good image. Absolutely. Yeah, somehow. And the trouble is, to take that image one step further, it's it's not it's lanes in the in the real sense that you know, when you when you swim in competition, those lanes, there's ropes, you can't cross, you have to go, you know, you can't just swim across, you have to make an effort to cross. And that's the issue you have those. In fact, it, it, it the image is only is good, but it's not good enough because it's actually walls. <laughs> it's not it's not strings of rope or whatever they use in swimming competitions. It's bloody walls that are... <laughs> Do you know what I, I, I used to think of, Jeffrey? I worked in a very bureaucratic legacy organization, and I used to think of Buckingham Palace. You know the little... The guy with his little uh, house, <laughs> and he's, yeah, yeah, he's hot, protecting hot, it with his bayonet. Hot. And yeah. it's like, everybody has one of those. And, and it can be the way in academia as well. It's like, um, well, this is how I get funding. I have yeah. to this my little segment of the world, I own it, don't come near it, God damn it. And no, therefore, we don't mix knowledge, etc. But no. I, I thought I would just leave our audience on a more optimistic view, because there's a there's a great quote that I pulled that I absolutely love that will whet everybody's t appetite for the next day. But there's also one of the really key things that from your work that I will emphasize every episode is that you have looked at the chaos and seen order. And there's a formula that can be applied to everything. And that is the key part of your work. It can be applied everywhere. The next day, we're going to look at Brunel, for example, the brilliant work of him in shipbuilding and scaling, how he got it wrong to emphasize the fact of how we can get it right if we understand this, how this can be applied to cities, how it can be applied to organizations, and ultimately how it can be applied to the planet itself. And I just wanted to really emphasize that. I'm going to quote this, Jeffrey, if that's all right, and then I'm going to hand to you to close today's episode. Perhaps you might want to say a word on this beautiful quote that I absolutely love. This alone whet my appetite. It was worth buying the book purely to read this paragraph. You say, for organisms, the sublinear scaling of metabolic rate underlies their cessation of growth and a size at maturity that remains approximately stable until death. A similar life history trajectory is at work for companies. They grow rapidly in the early years, but taper off as they mature and if they survive, eventually stop growing relative to the GDP. In their youth, many are dominated by a spectrum of innovative ideas as they seek to optimize their place in the market. However, as they grow and become more established, the spectrum of their product space inevitably narrows. And at the same time, they need to build a significant administration and bureaucracy. Relatively quickly, economies of scale and sublinear, sublinear scaling, reflecting the challenge of efficiently administrating a large and complex organization, dominate innovation and ideas encapsulated in sublinear scaling, ultimately leading this to stagnation and to mortality. 
half of all companies in any given cohort of US publicly traded companies disappear within 10 years and a scant few make it to 50, let alone 100 years. As they grow, companies tend to become more and more unidimensional, driven partially by market forces, but also by the inevitable ossification of the top down administrative and bureaucratic needs perceived as necessary for operating a traditional company in the modern era, change, adaptation and reinvention become increasingly difficult to affect, especially as the external socioeconomic clock is continually accelerating and conditions change at a faster and faster rate absolutely beautifully articulated there. And I thought that would be a way to whet our appetite for the next episode, but also as a way for me to close and to thank you as well. Perhaps you have a word on that before we close. Oh, I just said, well, first of all, thank you. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't realize I'd written such a long paragraph about that. It's beautiful, though. It's, it, 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 it encapsulates everything we talked about. And you didn't know that, which is beautiful. I would say, I would, listening to it, um, I would probably change a few words here and there now that I know a little more. In the that, that's my, that's my pronunciation. That's a <laughs> no, 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 no. There are a few things that are, but, but mostly, yes, that's the, that's the idea. And uh, I will elaborate on that. Uh, I, I look forward to elaborating on that and discussing it with you next time. Um, and um, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a fascinating part. It's, it's another fascinating variation on the same theme. That's what I find. So, you know, as a scientist, I find so interesting that the underlying mathematics and equations are sort of the same, whether you're, you know, a mammal, a bird, a company, or a city, or the entire planet, um, but they manifest themselves completely differently. You know, I mean, it's uh, it, quite differently. And um, I, I, I will elaborate. But I will elaborate more on the company stuff because that's so central. Um, and the other thing I would like to do is take that and then talk about some things that we I talked about in the book, but we've done a lot of work on recently, and that is taking it to the whole planet. And uh, uh, because we, we've done some more work on that, and that's been very interesting. But um, yeah, well, I appreciate uh, your enthusiasm for this work, and I'm very flattered by it, and I very much look forward to our continuing the conversation. I think it's absolutely essential work, and I, I have this picture oh. of when you meet the big maker in the sky, Peter's at the gates, and he goes, West, Jeffrey West? Oh, yeah, he wants to meet you. And then you meet him and he goes, you were so close, man. You were so close. You had the formula. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. By the way, I do want to mend slightly something you said at the beginning of your little conclusion there, that um, it's, it, it is, it, there, of course, it's, I believe very strongly that we can't solve our big problems without doing science and science in its broadest sense, but uh, in particular, to emphasize that we also need to do it in the narrower sense of having a quantitative predictive theory that is based on underlying principles and ideas that is, of course, for these kinds of systems, coarse grained. And we need that. And until we see that integrated kind of framework, I think we're always going to be struggling. And, and, and part of the motivation for that is that is that we're not necessarily going to 
quote, solve the problem for perpetuity, but it provides a framework for maintaining the kind of wonderful socioeconomic system that we've developed and to continue that and make it um, accessible for, you know, the other, I hate to say it, three billion people that are coming on board in the next few years. <laughs> Can we do that? And that's that's one of the big questions. But having underlying science, having science underlying some of these issues and, and, and informing policy, I think is so crucial. And we've sort of lost that. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're promoting that. Absolutely. I think it's essential for innovation workers as well. We tend to fail our way towards success. But what if there was a formula? And yes, you had the mindset, but you had the art and the science. So it's not prescriptive. I think that's very important what you're saying. It, 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 this cannot be prescriptive in the, you, you know, it's not like going to the doctor and saying, here's the problem. And he writes, oh, yeah, take two aspirin a day and take this fancy schmancy bio antibiotic and so on. That ain't it. Um, it's 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 that first of all getting the conceptual framework and thinking in those terms and combining as you say with one's intuition more qualitative ways of thinking and so on um, but also in the broadest sense being able to to be able to solve some of these problems um, you know where we can do that we can dig deeper in some of these cases and using that so it's a combination of all these things it's not. You know, I don't take a kind uh, of singular view of this at all. I want to take is the word Catholic. I think that's probably the right word here with a small c view, you know, a bigger view of the whole thing and that integrates all these things. A thing you just sprung to my mind was uh, because you're in, in California as well, is um, the original version of what we now know as aspirin, which is Bayer's product, is was was actually tinctures of cannabis oil. And they used to give it to people for toothaches. But here was the problem. The problem was, well, it, it linked to your endocannabinoid system differently than it would to me, depending on weight and size and how our systems worked. So they could never get a prescriptive measure for people. So when aspirin came along, and it was a prescription, they went with something that was far simpler. And that is unfortunately, one of the challenges with this because we are, we're in a tincture society now rather than a prescriptive one. And I think that's really insightful of you to say that as well. So very, very insightful for innovation work as well, Jeffrey. So an absolute pleasure, man, as always, I really, really enjoyed it. I le learned so much. I had some breakthrough moments today of thinking, and I really thank you author of scale, the universal laws of life and death in organisms, cities and companies. Jeffrey West, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Aiden. Brilliant, man. Thank you. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and to move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. And I'll see you next week.